So during the last week, we have had the privilege to read the word of God each turbulent day. And do we really fully appreciate what a privilege this is? There was a dark time when the Bible was forbidden and owning it could get you killed. So do we truly value what we have today? For some, this question sounds too sickly sweet because they're not ready yet to appreciate what a gift it is. And godless people believe it has absolutely no relevance to our lives whatsoever, don't they? It's just a collection of old fairy stories for stupid people who waste their times, uh, their lives worshipping a dead rabbi and a non-existent God. I was told this week by a Jewish rabbi that I worship a God on a stick, by which he meant Jesus as he was being crucified. Those were the words he chose to use to me. All kinds of people are absolutely horrified that we place importance on the Bible. But what I love about today in these times, these people that look down on us, is that they then go on to generously say, well, I guess if it makes you happy, or brings meaning or peace or hope to your lives, and if it doesn't do anyone any harm, then I guess it's okay. And to that I say, Amen. Never a truer word. So when we can make sense of little else in the world, so complicated and so many conflicting arguments, full of intrigue, and our hearts are not steady, we can have rest in the word that is alive by the Spirit. It gives us joy and meaning and peace and hope and doesn't do anyone any harm. When we open the scriptures, we don't find the faltering heartbeat of human opinion, superficial stories from someone's point of view about money and power and celebrity. No, we find life-giving, life-affirming, re-energizing words of God that bring the living God into our hearts and minds by the power of his Spirit. For us, the Bible is not an option. We don't read it just because it's fun when we're bored, like another TV channel. We don't leave it to the very end of each day. It's not something we put off. It's not a dusty book that stays on the shelf. It's not a website we never visit. It's not a put book that we put down quickly. It's not like a newspaper article that we just skim read just to get the idea of what's going on. Would we rip a page out of it to light the fire? Would we rest a cup of tea on it? Would we throw down a glossy gossip magazine on the top of a Bible and cover it up? No. It's a cleansing gift. It's God revealed to us. It's his mind. It's his purpose. His name. His truth. The hope he gives us. It relates us to him. It's his gift to us. And you don't give gifts to people unless you care about them, unless you love them. It's something absolutely precious that we want to share with others. We want to see in their eyes the excitement we have 
when we think a totally new insight or feel closer to a Bible character than we ever have before. So don't let anything come between you and your Bible. We're not really living unless we're reading it regularly and wholeheartedly. And we all go through low periods, but we must never let the Bible reading become just another thing that we meant to do but didn't have time to do it. So let's today focus ourselves on just a few pages of scripture, leaving behind the tinkling symbols of the shrill, fear-mongering media, writing what they're told to write, what we must in turn believe, all borne along by an invisible, vested interest, by ratings, by an insistent establishment voice, the tyranny of the majority. Let us firmly put aside all of that, all the trivial matters of people and politics, and put them in their rightful place outside our camp this morning. This morning is a Euro-free zone. You might have expected from our Revelation reading that I would talk about Europe, but I'm determined not to mention it. As we read in Psalms chapter 2, why do the nations rebel? Why are the countries devising plots that will fail? The only reason we care about Europe is that it confirms Bible prophecy. It says that Jesus is nearer. It may say a time of trouble is coming, but we say bring it on. Bring on God's love. Bring on his mercy, which we are guaranteed in that time of trouble. Bring on the Messiah and the rest of Psalm chapter 2. So this morning, let's recognise the presence here in this room of our King that we are waiting to see crowned. For the next 30 minutes, it's just about him. The Old Testament is alive with references and examples of him and those faithful who are like him. And we're going to look at Hannah today, a truly beautiful story. Hannah means grace to find favour, undeserved favour. We'll look at her example today and hopefully come away encouraged. So let me ask all of us here a question. Why were you created? In other words, what's your purpose here? Why are you here? If you truly believe that God has called you, and it's right that we believe that, or we wouldn't be here, then what does he have in mind for you? It's at once a hard and a very easy question to answer. In one way, we have absolutely no idea, and we imagine it has something to do with the future, because quite often we can't see much meaning in our day-to-day -day lives. But on the other hand, we easily recognise that we don't answer a question like, why are you here, by trying to know the mind of God. We answer that, that kind of question by being the answer. What I mean is that when we meet our daily challenges with a godly attitude, then Yahweh is able to work with us to fulfil whatever purpose he has for us. If we resist and fight him, if we refuse him or complain, then we're in danger of being that metal that the metal worker can't mould, that clay that's dried out and can't be reshaped. So we don't have to answer the question of, why are we here? What's our purpose? We just have to be like God. And then whatever purpose that is will be worked out. 
In Hannah's life, we have an example of someone who was under intense pressure, but in the end, recognised that accepting God, changing who she was by being faithful in her attitude and approach, was the key to working with God to fulfil her purpose with her in providing Samuel, to make her life meaningful and to push forward the plan of God. We have a lot to learn from her. So picture her now, poor Hannah, year after year, showing up and in Shiloh, defeated, humiliated, a woman with an empty house, taunted by the woman she was forced to share her husband with, the sound of laughter always from somewhere else, from Peninnah's house. Her name means Pearl, by the way, so I'm going to call her Pearl from now on. Children playing happily outside in the dirt. Imagine, from the youngest to the eldest, they viewed Hannah at a distance, an unhappy figure, a lonely figure. Someone they sort of liked, but always got in trouble for going too near. Their mother always eyeing her with suspicion. The wife loved more than me. She taught her children in the way she felt to look down on Hannah. Hannah was childless and she felt it. There were no cuddles for Hannah. Getting too close to her Pearl's children would result in a taunt. Get your own child. Or in the scared child being called back by one of its brothers or sisters. So every year she dreaded going to Shiloh, a place for relatives to meet, for children to mingle, for mothers to talk and swap stories. And she was always the utterly lonely one in the crowd, her husband off somewhere else doing business. Hannah was broken, resentful, bitter, unhappy, defeated, her mind far, far away, depressed and crying, not even enough appetite to eat, let alone get involved. As a man who loves a woman who was so down, who didn't have enthusiasm at all, Elkanah had only one way out, or he himself would become depressed. He probably busied himself with the things he needed to do for his family, in the market, gathering food, and returning to find Hannah in the same state of mind, unaware of the day's constant taunting and the shame she felt. Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? A man of substance and position, but without true understanding of the state of mind of his wife, the weak support of a distracted man, too busy to be present in the moment, an insensitive and thoughtless man, he loved her, but he didn't understand her, and he didn't love her the way she needed to be loved. She probably didn't even muster the strength to reply to that question. Try as he might, he could not lift her spirits. He couldn't offer her faith in God. She remained broken year after year, month after month. She continued to be bullied and belittled. Is there pain in your life that is so persistent, so overwhelming, always present, so huge, something unsolvable that you simply can't touch it? You don't have any answers for it and you don't know how to deal with it. Well, that was how Hannah felt.
Have you forgotten how to ask for something from God? Because we're able to cope with niggles or with an annoyance that comes and goes. But these big things that won't go away, in the end we become worn down and defeated. Anything that causes us that much suffering that we feel we can't cope with, we grow strangely silent in prayer. We find coping mechanisms of our own. We withdraw from people. We make adjustments in our lives and the things we say and do and the way we behave. We forget to keep hope alive for the change that God can affect. Remember, we're each born with our personalities that God has to shape. And this is the backdrop to Hannah's suffering and to our suffering. God is literally working on us to bring us to the kingdom. We read in Hebrews chapter 12, Now all discipline seems painful at the time, not joyful, but later it produces the fruit of peace and righteousness for those trained by it. Therefore strengthen your listless hands and your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but healed. Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Her suffering had brought her to rock bottom. The pain was so intense that something had to change. Something snapped. Can anything good come from pain and suffering? Yes, absolutely it can. All pain and suffering is there to bring us to God in prayer for help. And that might sound ridiculous, and it certainly doesn't feel good. And who am I to say this anyway? But this is how God works sometimes. And we remember the reason why Hannah couldn't have children to begin with. In verse 6 we read of, in First Samuel chapter 1, the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. This is one of those times that atheists really get hot under their collar about God's methods, isn't it? They see him as petty or malevolent. How can this be a God of love? Well, fortunately, we don't have to make those kinds of difficult decisions about what people suffer and go through in their lives. We wouldn't have a clue how to progress the plan of God, where to apply pressure, how much pain to allow someone to go through, whether they should have children or not. We would not have a clue. In Hannah's world, with raids by the Philistines, violence, godlessness, No king, moral decay, everyone doing whatever they felt like doing, the pressure of jealousy of Pearl's children and the taunting and all the unhappiness of sharing her husband with such a woman. God chose to add to her pressure by preventing her from having children. So how do we believe in a loving God in these circumstances? How do we keep faith in our own lives when it just doesn't seem fair what we have to go through, when we can't resolve the pain and God doesn't seem to be listening. Well, we know things about God because we have his word. We know that nothing is impossible with God and we know that all things work for the good to those that love him. God ensures that we have the pressures in our lives that we need For those he loves, he provides us with the spiritual equivalent of those flesh and blood Philistine enemies that ancient Israel had to cope with, constantly making their lives difficult. 
We are each engaged in a spiritual battle to keep our minds focused on Christ, who's given us so much, to keep our lives dedicated to God when our urges seem always in the wrong direction, to be faithful and hopeful in the face of continuing hardship and often lonely struggles in our minds. The fight we have is not to harden our hearts or believe the lie that God doesn't love us. When we are suffering, it's a fact that we don't have huge energy to help others. We can't get up early and do everything we would like. We despise how little we're able to do, actually, and we feel worthless. We get down and we feel lacking in all the skills we need to be a brother or sister of Christ. Sometimes we can only manage to put one foot in front of the other, literally, so heavy are our hearts. But Elkanah loved Hannah nonetheless, and God loves us nonetheless. Nothing changes that. We might be so weak that we can hardly carry on, and we're certainly not great to be with sometimes, but true friends are those that can be with us when we're sad or happy, and love for each other when we are at our lowest is a pale reflection of the love that God, who is faithful, continues to have for us, even though we can't offer him anything. I like to think that Hannah was never able to deny Elkanah's love for her, despite her being barren and unproductive and worthless by all measures of their current society, unable, to, uh, unable even to pass on a knowledge of God to her children. But every time she was aware of this love that Elkanah had. So she reached rock bottom at the proper time, with the proper pressure, but still fully in the presence of love from God and her husband. And when we reach rock bottom, that's where Christ, our rock, is waiting for us to act on our behalf. It's just a question of the proper time and for God's reasons. Let us bear with each other then and love others as we see they have need. So in verse 10 of chapter 1 we read, in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. She wasn't able to keep it together any more, and she wept bitterly. And as she faced the living God in that moment, she admitted to him that he had been in control all the time. And instead of bitterly blaming him for her pain, she looked to him, the one who had been aware of doing it all along, who had been aware of what she'd been going through and had actually caused it in the first place. She looked to him in humility. And it's a very powerful thing to notice that about Bible characters that are accepted by God, that they always look to God as their source of help. They give up talking to others. They get past all of that. They go inwards. They go alone. They break and they choose God as their help in that moment. In these moments, 
in a sense. We are asked to forgive God for our suffering. In other words, we accept that it's been from him and that he's allowed it. But our help is from him at the proper time. We don't complain, nor do we question. We are broken-hearted and meek. But her suffering wasn't over yet. We read in verse 12, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice wasn't heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. She was judged to be drunk by Eli, the very man who would later take in her child. This Eli, a man going blind with age, whose sons were the very opposite of Hannah, free and powerful and socialites, wayward, drunken and faithless. He was blind enough with their behaviour, but with hers, he noticed it straight away and he judged her. He had so much experience with drunkenness, he saw it in even people who were innocent. He was fat and heavy, benefiting no doubt from his son's practice of stealing meat from the worshippers. But how did she react? Towards this man whose sons were objects of scandal, public scandal. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. She wasn't angry. She wasn't indignant that such a man as Eli, allowing his sons all of these liberties, dared to call her drunk. She just explained the facts. Go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him, he replied. May your servant find favour in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. So far we see a changed Hannah. After that storm of tears and reaching the bottom of her grief, there was only one way, and that was to have confidence in the living God. In Romans 5 we read this, We glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit given to us. But this was just the start of Hannah's incredible transformation. The suffering she had endured had been working peaceable fruits of righteousness in her. And let's witness the result. When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Now, Elkanah had the right to annul Hannah's vow. In Exodus 30, we read this. Any vow or sworn obligation that would bring affliction to her, her husband can confirm or nullify. But if her husband remains completely silent about her from day to day, he thus confirms all her vows or all her obligations which she's under. He confirms them because he remains silent about her when he heard them. But if he should nullify them after he has heard them, then he will bear her iniquity. But what was his reaction? 
In verse 23, do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. In saying that he confirmed her oath, the oath that would see the son of the woman he loved, in other words, his favourite son, permanently live with this man Eli, a very old man, whose own children were totally out of control and scoundrels, some 12 miles away from the family house. He clearly had a great deal of respect for Hannah's state of mind, her spirituality. He loved her in the true sense of accepting her judgment and godliness. She had earned back his respect by her positive change of mind. Next, Hannah herself had every right to redeem Samuel, as we know. But years later, after Hannah had taught him about the living God and they set off, instead of performing the ritual and taking him back, both of them as a couple honoured their promise and left him there, a vulnerable young boy in the care of a nearly 90-year-old. In this way, she offered everything that she was, all that she had, she and Alcana both, they had learned obedience to follow God's ways in absolute trust through their suffering, which had done its work. In Matthew 6, we read, So then, don't worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the unconverted pursue these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But, above all, pursue his kingdom and righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So then don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Today has enough trouble of its own. Because of her godly attitude, she was given not just one son, but five more children. God is able to give us more than we, we are able to think of asking for, according to the faith that's in us. The answers to our prayers might not be as straightforward as soon or as simple as we might think. And nor is the answer to the question, what were we created for? What's our purpose? As all God's ways are interconnected and his answers are plural, aren't they? they he answers one question with many answers because his purpose is bigger than each one of us. Everything must come at the proper time. The character and hope that were provided through the suffering that they went through and that we go through, allow us to be worked on by God, to become part of his purpose, to be vindicated. So let's read some of Hannah's prayer of joy and thanks and vindication together now. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. 
He seats them with princes and he makes them inherit a throne of honour. It isn't by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. God requires us to hope big in the face of our suffering, not to give up. He requires it from us to be strong spiritually in the acceptance of our weakness and our weak position. It's a totally lovely prayer, isn't it? It has the Messiah, the last shall be first, the gathering together of the nations and their judgments and the resurrection. Suffering leads to perseverance, leads to character, leads to hope that does not disappoint. So what is our hope, brothers and sisters? What is it that's weighing us down, that's growing our character? Give thanks for that, because at the proper time, God will reward us. Nothing is impossible with God. Do not give up on him. Remain hopeful. Keep faith with him in the face of stubborn difficulties. And even if you are down, remember that you are still loved. It is never too late for God to turn it all around. And the ultimate example of this is Jesus, of course. Jesus waited and waited in agony until he felt his life draining out of him, until he had no physical strength left. And at any time he could have just stepped down. In his moment of utter weakness, when all he had was pain and thoughts of abandonment and remembering his family and his disciples that had run off in disbelief and fear, he, learned, he had learned obedience throughout his intense, lifelong suffering and he stayed where God wanted him to be, despite the suffering. Even though he knew his family was suffering and all of those he loved on earth were suffering, he stayed in place, experiencing that mental anguish. He was able to stay until it was finished and he even mustered the very words to say out loud, it is finished. He had beaten his own survival instinct and given everything he had in faith of being, of being something far better, of having an innumerable company of seed, though he himself was childless.